What is happening to the surface of the planet Earth and to California's Central Valley? The concerns we have here in Modesto are varied. We need to look at the effects that the global temperatures are having on our soil and various aspects of life in an agricultural community. What are the honest, hardcore facts about reckless human behavior that cause the peril that humans make for each other? And what can we do to take better care of each other? Great Mother Earth, her promise in peril. We are curators of factual recordings so that you can learn and navigate for yourself this terrain of the perils and the promises right here on kcbpradio.org sponsored by the Peace Life Center of Modesto. Today we'll hear from John LaForge of Nuke Watch and from three of the four necessity valve turners, a merry band of prayer activists who successfully stopped the flow of tar sands oil in Minnesota. Mr. LaForge will talk about the nuclear threat in California for our environment, including human health. And the valve turners will talk about the capacity of civilians to help stem the tide of climate disruption with respect for the land and groundwater as a promise for the future, giving us hope in other bioregions such as the Central Valley of California. Let's start with John LaForge. I'm John LaForge. I work for NukeWatch, which is a anti-nuclear uh, and uh, environmental justice group in Wisconsin. Got hired by Bonnie Erfer back in 92, so I've been with the organization for 27 years this year. A little before that, we did some research, my former partner and I, about the land-based missiles of the United States. So I've been with NukeWatch almost 30 years, actually, now. Okay. Um, that is impressive. Um, I think that uh, you probably work at least uh, over those 30 years uh, on the well, average. Over th- yeah, until 96 I did construction work. Oh, okay. I only worked full-time for NukeWatch since 96, and that's, yeah, 30 to 40 hours. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in my book, that would put you as one of the foremost um, experts on nuclear weapons in the United States. I don't know if that how you feel about that. <laughs> or I don't know that. about that. <laughs> okay. But, um, you know, there's not a lot of people that have the the privilege to spend um full-time job studying what's going on with nuclear weapons probably people within the military of course and that yeah because the stuff is so deadly and and it lasts longer the waste and the products you know it's going to last longer than any monetary system has ever lasted on the planet or mm-hmm. government uh probably longer than it, well certainly longer than any religion if, it, if we have people into the future so it takes like a long-term commitment and currently the only people with the money and the commitment to make sure that the nuclear materials are allegedly not being stolen, not contaminating people are supposed to be locked up in some way, you know, or, you know, uh, not just locked up, but contained from polluting the environment. That's government people doing the guardianship in the current day and age. But uh, in the post-empire age, we'll need something else, um, some other kind of entity, some other, other humans to take care of other humans by saying, don't go there. How dangerous is uh, nuclear waste uh, in terms of the guardianship? Like, who's who's protecting it? How much is it leaking into into the environment? Oh, those are tough questions. Um, nuclear waste right now um, comes in a lot of different forms. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. When uh, you hear the phrase nuclear waste, people automatically presume uh, you're talking about high-level waste fuel rods uh-huh. that have been used in a nuclear reactor, and that is the most highly radioactive material uh-huh. that we have left over from nuclear power generation. Um, the only stuff that's hotter than 
waste fuel from reactors is waste fuel from shipboard propulsion reactors. That fuel is is used for far longer periods of time inside those shipboard reactors than the fuel inside a commercial power reactor. So when it comes out of submarines and aircraft carriers, it's far more radioactive even than waste fuel from a commercial plant. I didn't know that. And that right now, that's uh, all this material is being stored in dry casks, so-called large concrete canisters. Uh, sometimes they're steel-lined. Um, they're air-ventilated or air-cooled. Um, after the material has been cooled off in pools of water for many, many years first. Again, to answer your question, how dangerous is this and where is it leaking? Yes. Uh, some of the dry casks are in places where they shouldn't be kept. For example, Prairie Island in Minnesota is in the floodplain of the Mississippi River. And in 1963, I believe, this area was completely underwater. And now they're storing... Uh, thousands of tons it was underwater before food. it was stored there yes it okay. was underwater before there was a nuclear reactor there and before they stored their waste outside in Canada. yeah but such an example just only 55 years ago whatever it was um 58 years ago 50 yes. you know uh, shows that it's probably gonna happen again in this floodplain. Yeah. and so now that there is waste stored there that it could happen again there and they, they need to get it out of there right like, who's working on that there's a lot of reasons not to move nuclear waste okay because of you increased incidents of accidents yeah. during yeah. transport but there are a few places in the country that being one of them where the, it probably should be moved out of right. it uh, yeah. places on the coastlines that are subject to uh, storm surges uh, earthquakes tsunamis including california coast and the new york city coast uh, new york state there's nuclear waste that is vulnerable to the seacoast uprising so those places are where the nuclear waste is the most dangerous. I mean, there are other circumstances that make other storage of nuclear waste even possibly more dangerous. And that is these cooling pools where the uh, fuel rods are kept after they're first taken out of reactors and replaced uh, inside with fresh fuel. This hot waste is put into cooling pools, which themselves are vulnerable to cracking for earthquakes or loss of loss of power problems because mm -hmm. of uh, a station blackout has happened at Fukushima in Japan means that this water circulation stops and the cooling of this waste fuel inside of a waste pool then stops and the uh, material is so thermally hot that it boils off the water in no time mm -hmm. and then catches fire that was John LaForge, who has been analyzing the science and politics of nuclear weapons, power, and waste for over three decades. He's got more to say to our audience here in the California Central Valley, so we'll be back in a minute to hear more from John LaForge of NukeWatch. Welcome back to The Peril of the Promise, where this week we are looking at the nuclear and radioactive hazards on coastal California as the pollution appears to be spreading inland. After we hear a bit more from Mr. LaForge, we'll hear from the four prayer activists who made sure some tar sands pipelines got shut off in their act of civil disobedience in February of 2019, and why they think their illegal activity offers hope and a promise to the next few generations of humankind in the USA. So let's go back to Mr. LaForge talking about what California can learn from Fukushima. Then head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, a guy named Yazko, 
who was head of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission when Fukushima first started. In 2011. Yes. Uh, he announced to the world that one of the Fukushima fuel pools was on fire. He was mistaken about that, but at the time, uh, that was the information he had, that the fuel, the water had been drained out of the fuel pool, and it had to have caught fire by then. Uh, that is the worst case scenario, and that is the most dangerous uh, part of uh, nuclear waste right now are these vulnerable fuel pools, and they are all over the country. They're at each of about 62 different nuclear reactor sites in the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if one of those was um, to, if any of them catches on fire, why is that dangerous? Airborne radioactive material, cesium, iodine, are dispersed, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of it in these fuel pools, more in a concentrated state than in any other place, more than inside the reactor. Yeah. And uh, much of the... Uh, regulatory fallout you might say from the fukushima accident was uh, calls by critics all over the world to beef up security and uh, beef up uh, the uh, robust yeah nature of fuel pools so that accidents station blackouts are less likely to happen yeah well you've been listening to the peril and the promise on kcbp radio we're going to take a short break and be right back with john laforge who has been analyzing the science and politics of u.s nuclear weapons for over three decades and the related issues such as nuclear waste as it pertains to the perils we face in california these perils that are happening as the sea level is rising and as wildfires burn and toxic pollution uh, on the edge of California could spread from nuclear sites along the coast, causing folks to move into the Valley bioregion. We now turn to the Valve Turners, that is, a group of four prayer activists who conducted extensive research along with prayerful reflection prior to illegally taking urgent action to address the severe and imminent threat posed by climate change. In early February of this year, these four people broke the lock on the caged Embridge site of manual shutoff valves near Blackberry, Minnesota. They sang songs and prayers as they attempted to stop the flow of tar sands oil through lines 3 and 4 after contacting the owner, a company called Embridge. The company did shut off the valves at the behest of the prayer activists, who called themselves the Four Necessity Valve Turners. These four U.S. citizens include a Catholic worker farmer named Brenna Anglada. The three others I interviewed were Allison, Michelle, and Daniel of Texas, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, respectively. The four necessity valve turners were summarily arrested on site and charged with felony crimes, and their court case is ongoing. I spoke with Daniel and Michelle first, just prior to their court hearing in late February 2019. I'm here with Daniel Yolderum and Michelle Nar Obed. And you guys are two of the valve turners. Uh, your, uh, your group is actually called... For necessity. For necessity, such as the necessity defense? Yes, and that we did this action out of necessity. It was necessary that we did this. Okay, tell us about the action, how this could be useful for the environment, for humanity. Well, Michelle and I and, and two others, uh, Allison Pullman and Brenna Kustanonglada, um, we uh, broke into a... Uh, Enbridge valve site for lines three and four, and uh, we informed Enbridge by phone that we were uh, going to turn off the valve in 15 minutes, and um, Enbridge themselves turned off the flow of the oil and uh, closed the valve. So our objective was to limit the flow that day of tar sands oil. And you succeeded for that day for a few hours, or maybe more than a day? Do you know how long they left it turned off? Well, they left it 
off for as long as we were there, uh, so that might have been another half an hour. Then they brought in people to come and inspect, so I don't know how long that took. It's hard to say how long that took. And you got the inspiration for this, uh, there was some maybe some connection with the Ojibwe before that, or what was the inspiration? How can you describe what the four of you uh, taking this kind of action for peace and for the environment? Yeah, it was a it was a very direct action. I mean, it was like it made a lot of sense. Uh, it, we had we had exhausted all other uh, measures of trying to stop this fossil fossil fuel industry. Um, many of us have participated in various campaigns. We've uh, signed petitions. We've like filled out postcards. We've made phone calls. Um, I personally went to all the PUC. Uh, public utility commission's hearings uh, that occurred over the expansion of the Line 3 project. For at least a year in advance? Or? Yeah, for a, yeah, probably a year in advance. And uh, the PUC hearing in, hearings in particular were just outrageous to me that, you know, prior to those hearings, prior to the evidentiary hearings, we had um, an administrative judge go through maybe eight or nine different cities and take public comments, mm -hmm. and and out of that, there were sixty-eight thousand people who said that they did not want an expansion of Line Three, nor did they want fossil fuel industry any longer. That we had to stop this, and uh, make way for a a new a new sustainable green energy. Sixty-eight thousand people had said that over what period of time in twenty seventeen? That was over a, a maybe three or four month period, and then and so sixty-eight thousand said no, and three thousand said yes, they uh -huh. wanted it. So I mean, this is minimal, right? Yeah. All those voices were, which one of them was mine, was completely disregarded. Sixty-eight thousand were disregarded, Just but three thousand disregarded, right? And so, and Enbridge then presented, they presented this over time as if the majority of the community oh, yeah. supports what they do because what a they can pay for that yeah. kind of publicity. Yeah. Yeah. And other people had done uh, valve turning actions in other places in the United States or Canada. This was not the first that private civilians have done this, but any data on the background of other? I think there have been, in Canada is where the valve turning strategy originated uh -huh. um, among uh, some indigenous activists, I believe, who had the message that Enbridge is colonial violence. Um, then in 2016, there was a, a coordinated effort with uh, Ken Ward and some others, um, including some uh, here in Minnesota, uh -huh. or near to here in Minnesota, who uh, turned off a valve in Bagley. Uh, okay. But there hasn't been any valve training, as far as I'm aware of, since 2016. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. And are all these at, at Enbridge-owned properties? or? Um... It was all tar sands. So of the fossil fuel industry, tar sands is probably the dirtiest. Yeah. So, yeah, it's the dirtiest, and um, it emits the most carbon dioxide than any of the other uh, fuels. So, yeah, so that's why the focus was on was on the tar sands oil. Yeah. So this is not even oil that goes to us in the United States. They're just using the U.S. as a conduit, basically. Yeah. And uh, and then that oil is is shipped down to a refinery. There's a couple of refineries. Um, one refinery in uh, in Superior, Wisconsin, and then from there it goes out to the 
Asian market. So, oh, okay. yeah. so, so Canadian pro company is profiting uh -huh. using the U.S. for its route and then making a profit out in the, in the Asian market. Well, one point I just want to make is, um, you know, I often hear uh, politicians and people saying they're going to get that oil out of there to China one way or another. And if uh, we don't do it, somebody else will. And I, I always ask the question, the, if, if I don't do it, somebody else will argument, um, seems like morally inexcusable. It's not something that we would teach our children to do. It's not something that our pastor um, would teach us. And I don't think it's something that um, Jesus would find acceptable from uh, the money changers at the temple if they said, well, if, I'm, if I don't do it, somebody else will. Right. And so, in terms of your, your faith and how it worked out in the action, in terms of a prayer action? For us, um, in addition to who we are uh, and, and what our faith practice is, we included and um, brought in many of the other faith traditions yeah. through um, their prayers that they sent in with us and through sacred objects that they sent to us with their prayers included in it. So, I mean, there's a, a universal kind of, like there's a universality in, in, that, in those faith traditions that like believe in the common good and uh, are people of goodwill and, um, and, and believe in the sacredness of creation and life. So it was all of that was brought in. Uh -huh. Us personal, personally, okay. yeah, I think oh, I think we're all we all identify as Christian, uh -huh. um, but but we didn't come into it with just Christianity. Right. Thank yeah. you. And finally, um, last question is, um, what's uh, what's the next aspect of this witness? Will there be a courtroom witness to be able to continue talking about this? Um, and a timeline for that, or and also a website or any place people can go for more information? Well, yeah, sure. There's uh, going to be several more hearings in court before they set a trial date. That date could be, you know, as much as 18 months away, Or, but we do have a website. We have both. We have a Facebook page, and that's F-O-U-R, okay. Necessity, okay. on the Facebook. And and I think you'll be able to access the website from the Facebook, from the Facebook page, page. Okay. Yeah. probably. Yeah. 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 I mean, we had a Facebook page that was off of the website, but they closed it down the first oh, yeah. day, and then it went back up again. Uh -huh. So, but if you just Google uh, for the number four necessity, you'll get to that yeah. website even without the .com part. Yeah. That was Michelle Narobed and Daniel Yildrum, two of the valve turners who helped stop the flow of toxic tar sands into the U.S. that was destined for increasing the carbon footprint in the Midwest. After their prayer action, they were jailed and the pipeline continued operating. We'll be right back after a quick break. Welcome back to The Peril and Promise on kcbpradio.org, 95.5 FM. Before the break, we heard from Michelle and Daniel. Again, these prayer activists took this illegal action in order to stop higher crimes and threats to the environment at a location about 130 miles, or 210 kilometers, from the U.S.-Canada border. The four necessity valve turners recorded their activities on social media and uh, live-streamed it as well. The company, Embridge, called the prayer action, quote, reckless and dangerous, unquote. 
Another pipe closure event happened about two years ago at four sites simultaneously in order to stop the hazardous and disrespectful work of Enbridge, which moves more than half of the U.S.-bound Canadian crude oil and a fifth of all natural gas used in the U.S. The company has no way to ensure the safety of their pipelines and consistently disrespects Indigenous rights over the territory Enbridge illicitly uses for moving crude oil. Regarding the promise for a brighter, cleaner, healthier future, the youngest of the four necessity valve turners is Allison, who talked about her preparation for this action, her first act of civil disobedience. Allison Pullman, what, what did you do to prepare um, your heart, your spirit, your mind for um, this action the, of the valve turning? Um, so I practice regularly uh, Vipassana meditation. Uh -huh. um, so I had already been doing that. Um, but then there wasn't a Vipassana center very close to Duluth. Um, so I asked a monastery, St. Scholastica, if I could come and do a three-day silent retreat. Mm -hmm. um, so I did sort of three full days of Vipassana meditation. I always um, thought Vipassana was a minimum of 10 days, but I guess it's a three-day too. No, well, and yeah, that's um, even at Vipassana centers, they do like three-day retreats for people who are interested. Uh -huh. And I wanted to do 10 days. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, I just, I didn't have all the like recordings and I um, couldn't find a place. So I didn't think I could facilitate 10 days for myself. Oh, um, yep. but, but yeah, so I did three days um, of silent meditation just a few days before the action. And then I also started a novena, oh, nice. which comes from the Catholic tradition. Uh -huh. um, it is a nine-day prayer with the rosary. Uh -huh. And then normally a novena. Sorry, just a, a car drive by. We're walking in the snow in Wisconsin in the winter. And uh, so go ahead and tell me sure. again. Sure. Yeah, so a novena is from the Catholic tradition and nine-day prayer. Normally, um, uh, there's also, so you pray the rosary and then there's also another prayer to go along with it and novenas are sort of set, there are different novenas for different occasions. Uh -huh. So I sort of took readings from different ecological um, uh -huh. books for like the, the prayer <laughs> that went along with the rosary yeah. um, and it ended up, I sort of put it out to the group um, if you guys would like to pray this with me. Um, I'm going to pray it nine days leading up to the action and everybody wanted yeah. to do it. So we all did it together every night. Um, oh, and then the morning of the action was the final novena. So it was a really good centering grounding thing for me personally. Uh -huh. And I think for everyone um, to do like right before we started getting ready and jumped in the car. Yeah. Um, and for listeners just tuning in, because this uh, program's about a half an hour long, um, just remind us again, really briefly in a sentence or less, <laughs> what what that action was and the date. Oh, sure. Um, so the action uh, occurred on Monday, February 4th uh -huh. um, of 2019. <laughs> and in one sentence, we cut the chain um, outside of an enclosed Enbridge pumping station. And we attempted to turn off the valves for line four. Um, and before we tried anything, we called Enbridge to let them know that they should probably turn it off before we do for safety. Yeah. Um, that was the goal and that is what happened. Um, yeah, successfully yeah. Uh, stopping the flow of the tar sands, um, this uh, fossil fuel basically. Um, mm -hmm. And the other question I have is, um, what do you think about the, the, the balance between effectiveness of, of what you were able to do that day and the faithfulness of just trying to do the right thing mm -hmm. for the sake of Mother Earth, for the sake of um, whosoever land it is? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So we definitely prepared our hearts and minds for like even um, no one showing up, no coverage happening, yeah. Yeah. like Embridge sort of ignoring us until we left. Uh -huh. Especially when we figured out like we really c couldn't do anything to turn off the line. Yeah. Um, we yeah. were unable. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. Um, Unable we, physically at the time, but your prayer power right. and, and the communication right. with the yeah. people that did have the yeah. power to turn it off. Yeah, so I believe that every action and every prayer um, holds significance in the world. Um, and for all of us, we discussed that beforehand when we were kind of starting the planning. Um, and all, we all agreed that it is just the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So whatever happened, we were still going to do it. Um, yeah. And yeah, honestly... Um, it only stopped the flow of tar sands for a very short time. Yeah. Um, but to be able to speak to a lot of people about it and encourage other people to take risks, not necessarily breaking the law, but just taking risk in your own life, yeah. um, to stand up for what you believe in, I think is, um, it was a, it ended up being a really effective way to do that. Yeah. Um, so I think that's way more important. Um, and hopefully uh, what can happen is, that so many people get on board um, and hearts and minds are changed um, and Enbridge just shuts the whole thing down. So That's excellent. Thank you very much, Allison. Yeah, thank you. Again, that was the youngest member of the four necessity valve turners, Allison Pullman, who, along with three other Catholic worker activists of the Midwest, they were able to get Enbridge to turn off the crude oil flow from Canada to the U.S. on February 4th, 2019. Again, the company, Enbridge, called the prayer action quote, reckless and dangerous, unquote. And the prayer activists believe it was responsible and safe, and that Enbridge is not only behaving hazardously and disrespectfully of indigenous rights, but also Enbridge is robbing our future generations of a clean, livable planet, both in the Midwest and other bioregions. The group says that the source of their name, For Necessity, it's a play on words because there were four adults doing this, but it's also like the word F-O-R. They did it for the necessity, taking such actions which are breaking the law, smaller laws, in order to uphold larger laws. This is the necessary behavior of civilians, according to the group, trying to protect their future and the current and future non-human life forms in the territories suffering from the tar sands energy extraction. You can learn more on their Twitter page, at for necessity. That's at the number four, necessity, N-E-C. E-S-S-I-T-Y, at For Necessity. And you can also hear more on future episodes of The Peril and the Promise. Thank you for tuning in to The Peril and the Promise. This show is heard three times a week on kcbpradio.org, 95.5 FM. I'm your host, my name is Pegasus, and we do need a co-host to join me here on The Peril and the Promise, so if you're interested... Look us up at kcbpradio.org and find out how to volunteer at your community radio station here in the Valley. You can go online to learn more about programming here on KCBP and stay tuned for more great local origination programming on 95.5 FM. You've been listening to The Peril and the Promise from kcbpradio.org, produced by Adlai Fredrickson and Pegasus, here at the Peace Life Center of Modesto. You can tune in every week at this time to learn about the peril that humans make for each other and the promise 
that we can make for a better world as community. Music on The Peril and the Promise on the Earth is by Alzara Getz and Dorothy Smelter.